0: You know, dinner party is a nice thing, especially now after we spent so many nights during virtual happy hours, remote concerts, breakout Zoom rooms. I don't know about you, but over the last couple of years, I attended virtual weddings, virtual funerals, virtual baby showers. Virtually everything was virtual. What did I wish for during those virtual months? Well, sure, I I wished I could go traveling again. I wanted to sit in my shade, sipping my latte beneath the awning of a famous cafe. I wanted a waiter to give me a reprimand in a language I could barely understand. I I wished I could go traveling again, of course. But, in fact, what I really wanted during those long and isolating months of social distancing was just to go to a good dinner party, to talk loud, laugh loosely, meet someone new, swap stories with some smart people. Well, last month, just as I was getting ready to go out of town, to go traveling again, finally, on a short European tour, I found myself at a dinner party in Bed-Stuy, in Brooklyn. This was one of my last days in town before heading out, and it was just the kind of event I had been craving. An eclectic group of folks gathered around a table, enjoying ourselves, luxuriating in our togetherness. And my hostesses that night were people who always play great music, elegant music, the kind of music that belongs to the lives we aspire to live. And as I was carrying on at the dinner table, I suddenly tuned into the music. There was a version of Antonio Carlos Jobim's Aguas de Marzo. The arrangement was faithful to Jobim's classic duet with Ellis Regina, but this was something else. Someone else was singing it, someone with a knowing wink, a hip flair. And it was being sung not in its original Portuguese, but in French, which gave it a slightly more cosmopolitan feel. Look, here's the thing. Some people believe in the idea of a guilty pleasure. I guess that's something you love, but you don't want to admit you love. Maybe you think it's bad for you to love it, or that it'll make you look silly. I don't know. If such a thing really exists, then for me, I suppose my greatest guilty pleasure is the song Aguas de Março." I mean, I've already made it clear to my wife and daughter that if there's ever a question about what to play for me in the future, like maybe I'm so old I can't remember who I am or whatever, just play me Aguas de Marso. There's something about the elegance and the simplicity of the rolling melody, the ongoing cycle of the chords. It's a song that seems to suggest so much and pretends to do so little, but it is deep, it's perfect. I admit probably half of the songs I've ever written have been an attempt to write Aguas de Marso in my own way. No wonder so many great artists have been called to that song. There's the Ellis Regina and Tom Jobim version, that first one that I loved. But then João Gilberto, Eliane Elias,
1: Milton Banana,
0: the San Andreo jazz band from Barcelona. oh Rosa Passos, check her out. Celso Fonseca Mark Murphy Luciana Souza Cassandra Wilson Art Garfunkel Jane Monheit My pal Anya Marina Natalie Dawn from Pomplamoose Rosemary Clooney and John Pizzarelli Sergio Mendes Olita Adams Al Jarreau Susanna McCorkle And of course, whoever this was that I was hearing at my dinner party. So there I was in bed style, suddenly very aware of this French version of my favorite song. I got up from the table to explore, found my way to the source of the music, and discovered that it was Stacy Kent. Stacy Kent, of course Man, I thought I got to talk to Stacy Kent Because clearly she knows some things that I want to know too I looked up her itinerary right then and there To figure out when and where I might catch her Only to discover that we would be performing at the same club in London The legendary Ronnie Scotts at the same time just a couple of weeks later She did the early show, we did the late show and that's how we came to be here today, you and me and Stacy, and her husband and musical partner, Jim Tomlinson. Uh, but before I forget, welcome to The Third Story, I'm Leo Sidrin. Stacy's story is really pretty incredible. She grew up in New Jersey, went to college at Sarah Lawrence in New York, then found her way to England to go to graduate school. But what she really went to do, though she may not have known it at the time, was to meet and fall in love with a young saxophone player named Jim Tomlinson. Together, the two decided to become professional musicians. Together, they created the sound and the musical world of Stacy Kent. Together, they made over 20 albums. Together, they won awards. Together, they traveled. Together, they sat for this conversation that you'll hear today. I didn't realize it when we started to talk, but it became clear to me almost immediately that if you want to fully appreciate the music and the life of Stacy Kent, then you must also speak with Jim Tomlinson. What had been clear to me in the way she chooses her material, the poise and the dignity of her performances, the thoughtfulness of her presentation, the fact that she sings fluently in multiple languages, that Stacy is a very literate person that literature and words are important to her. So maybe it was only a matter of time before some literary type would appear in her world. And in her case, it came in the form of the Japanese-born British writer Kazuo Ishiguro, who started out as a fan of Stacey's, something that she discovered when he played her version of They Can't Take That Away From Me on the BBC radio show Desert Island Discs, and she happened to be listening.
2: The way you hold your now. we dance till three the way you've changed
0: my in our conversation life. stacy tells me the story of how she and jim befriended ishiguro isha she calls him and how jim and isha began writing songs for stacy to sing in fact one of the first songs they ever wrote for her was called i wish i could go traveling again
2: i wish mm-hmm. i could go traveling again mm-hmm. It feels like this summer will never end And I've had such good offers From several of my friends I wish I could go traveling again
0: This year, Stacey and Jim are on tour along with pianist Art Hirahara presenting their latest record, Songs From Other Places. We spoke in the break between an afternoon matinee show and her evening show at Ronnie Scott's. You can hear the staff resetting the room, the hum of the hospitality in action. We sat at a table, masks on, because, as we talk about at the start of the conversation, Stacey and Jim are very serious about staying careful on the road. Here we talk about why she's a fatalist, escaping from the bounds of category, her journey from Jersey girl to cosmopolitan crooner and crossing borders in multiple senses of the phrase. The Third Story is made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit third-story.com for the full archive. And all the fun extras, visit patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to support the show. And visit wbgo.org studios to find out all about their exciting and award-winning content. Here's me, Stacey Kent, and Jim Tomlinson talking the talk at Ronnie Scott's earlier this month.
2: We've been on the road since March. Yeah. We're, sh- we're jamming two years into yeah. a few months. We started in March... We were in America, and we were going from states that were good to states that weren't good, to Canada, which was scary because we had to take the test to get back into America just to take the flight to Europe. And then we've just been crossing border to border. We've been in, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 countries now since March, and every country is different. The numbers are different each place. And it's really intimidating, and we're just trying to stay in a little bubble, the three of us, yes. so that we're okay. And it's funny, because everybody's got a different attitude. Completely. Like, I, I walked into one place, and one of the owners, a, a, a promoter of a venue, said, Why are you still in a mask? And I said, Because you want me to be here. Yeah. You want me not to have had COVID, so I didn't have to cancel your gig. So it, there's this strange kind of perception... I won't say attitude, because nobody wants to get COVID or give it to anybody. But there's a perception like it's okay. And we're, the three of us are going, it's so not okay.
0: Well, that is interesting. We're just sliding in here, by the way, Stacey Kent. I'm sorry. Uh, no, 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 don't be silly. It's totally fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> because venues like local patrons are want to be done with it, right? Right. And on the other hand, as you say, in order to provide talent to local patrons, we have to remember that this is still very much going on.
2: Ronnie's yeah. wrote a phenomenal letter to the people who were attending. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of the best letters I've ever seen. Where yeah. It was just so articulate. And they said, we know that this isn't obligatory and we know that everybody wants to be past this. But just know that, you know, if you come and you are a mask, what you're doing is paying it forward in the same way that the people from the Netherlands, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, were doing it for you tonight yes. so that our artists could be okay. Yes. And we so appreciated that because, you know, they said for artists it is, on the road, it is different right now because we got to get in and out. So knock on wood, everything's yes. okay so far. Yes. But it's you're right, it's intense and it's, uh, you know, it's intimidating.
0: You know, you mentioned you've been on the road since March and that you're squeezing in two years of cancelled gigs and tours that didn't happen going all the way back to 2020. And I thought, as I sat at the bar watching you play just now, that of all of the venues to be in with you and to be talking to you and all of the cities to be in, that this is such a great place to connect with you because London is kind of where your career started and that this club must have been a huge part of your early development. So to see you Here, of all places, gave me a sense that I was kind of watching, you know, an ongoing story between you and Ronnie's and and the city,
2: you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and it's funny because you walked in today when I was just, you know, gushing about Ronnie in those early days. Because we were, now I've always done that, but we were absent for two years. And so the intensity of coming back to London after all that time when I did start here, you know, on so many levels, There's so much history here because, you know, I met my husband. I met Jim in Oxford. You know, I I was a a kid in England messing around with her master's credits in her back pocket going, Mm -hmm. what am I doing? Mm -hmm. You know, am I going home? Am I continuing my studies? I met this guy. I have a huge crush on him. Am I going to hang around? You know, and then I ended up at the Guildhall School of Music. And everything that's happened has left me with this slightly fatalistic attitude hmm. because how on earth did I find myself... You know, I'm married to a person not from my own mm-hmm. country, and I think that that makes you think, how did I end up here? Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody probably asks that about their lives at some point, of course. But, but have you been
0: asking that along the way, or are you? did you take some time recently in, to reflect and ask how did this happen?
2: Well, I think that it's just... I'm more acutely aware of it. I probably was always asking it because it could have so easily just not have happened Mm -hmm. because I Hmm. did end up in a foreign country. And so that that gives you that kind of sense of objectivity looking in on your life over yourself and going, if I hadn't made that flight on that day and Mm. that call, maybe I wouldn't be here at all. I might have asked different questions than had I met somebody, you know, back in Colorado where Mm -hmm. I was living or something. But the last two years have certainly made all of us reflect in that quiet Mm -hmm. on so much, right, about what we're doing and where we've come from and certainly where we're going and what we want from life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for us, too, it was a matter of, because I work with my husband and we tour and we're happy on the road together, it meant that we asked the questions about home life less, and it afforded us the opportunity because we were lucky enough to you know be mm-hmm. okay through that period mm-hmm. to say it would be nice to have a home life and some routine mm-hmm. and as banal as this sounds, um, houseplants and you know things that just grounded us a little bit more. And so we started thinking, well, let's (laughs) record from home more Mm -hmm. and let's, you know, consolidate the tours and go out and then go home and spend lots of time, you know, in between at home. Mm -hmm. Let's maybe not run quite so much.
0: So moving forward, it has reset your thinking a little bit. Or adjusted it. Yeah. Well, I think it has for, you know, it's it's tempting to... I'm glad you're here too, Jim. Um, It's tempting to think that we're going to go back... To what was before, but we can't, nobody's going back. We can't go back. The people that we're performing for don't go back. Nobody is the same two years later. So neither are you in terms of the way you think about touring or recording or anything.
2: No. And I think everybody's this way right now. And yes, it's very easy to just kind of forget and fall back into old habits. But then again, it's funny. There's a song that I sing that we recorded for songs from other places Mm -hmm. called Les Voyages. It's in Mm -hmm. French. Mm It's a really wise lyric by this poet slash composer called Raymond Levesque. And it's you can use it metaphorically because it talks about when you go on a voyage. Mm-hmm. Now, for him, it's voyage, mm-hmm. right? But for us, we all went on this voyage.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's inevitable. You can never look at anything the same way again. You just can't. You've mm-hmm. been changed.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And we've all been changed. Ah, les voyages. Au rivage lointain. Oh, havers un uncertain que c'est pour les voyages Qui est face au loin Nos larmes et nos chagrins Mon Dieu, à les voyages Comme vous fûtes sages De nous donner ces images And so even if we fall back into habits cuz habits are easy there's still going to be that little alarm bell, the little siren ringing saying Ah, les voyages Qui meurissent les cœurs Nous ouvrent au bonheur Que c'est bon les voyages Et lorsque l'on retourne chez soi Rien n'est comme autrefois Quand nos yeux We're very happy going along the way we are, mm-hmm. but of course, we've missed out on certain things and that's okay too, but it gives us a chance to go, let's fix the balance. Mm-hmm. Let's improve on the balance here. Because we are missing out, we have been missing out on kind of a home life. And now I think we're longing for more of a home mm-hmm. life.
0: And yet you are out here presenting a collection of songs about travel yeah. and about what I imagine was probably the nostalgia for the exotic, for the place away from home while you were at home.
2: Yeah, just to be out. The truth is, I think we would have made this album or this kind of album. Mm-hmm with or without the pandemic, Hmm. because I tend to be attracted to these kinds of songs anyway. When Ishiguro writes me lyrics, they are so often about that feeling of unrest. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was very much in an element, a place that I already belong, and a place where my fan base, the people who come to see us, they like to go there with Mm -hmm. me. When I first met Ish Goro, when Jim and I first met Ish, and we really just connected, it was it was phenomenal chemistry. As everybody listening knows, yeah. you know, sometimes you just meet people in your life and it's kind of like a, oh, it's you. You know, you've known each other a long time. Were you y- share a were sensibility. Were you aware
0: of his work? I understand he was aware of your work and, and selected your music among his favorite albums or something like
2: yes. that. Yes. Well, here's what's uncanny. And I think this is what's so wonderful about the story this is what's such yeah. a thrill about our collective story, the three of us, and as I was saying, because the four of us are so close, Lorna, uh, who is Isha's wife, it was just one of those really powerful immediate connections, like hmm. friends you've friends. always people you've always been friends with. And I think it really makes sense in the full circle sense of the story that we would have this sh- friendship because there's just shared sensibility. So I was such an enormous Ishiguro fan, Hmm. when I found out that he was a fan of mine. He was one of those writers for me who, you know, there are lots of books that you read and you love them, Mm -hmm. and then there are those books that you read that are just set apart where you feel like, wow, that writer just said it as I'm feeling it, but I never would have been able to articulate Mm -hmm. it that way. And that's how Ishiguro was for me. Mm. Before I met him, I had already read three of his novels, and they were so meaningful to me. He played us, as you pointed out, on Desert Island Discs, mm-hmm. the BBC radio show. And, um, you know, the, for people listening in, celebrities, people from all walks of life get interviewed about their life. But also you get to know a little bit more of more insight about them because they say if you were alone in a desert mm-hmm. island, what seven records would you take? And he took me. Mm-hmm. And I think he recognized something in me that made sense to him. And vice versa. Well, you,
0: you both, I mean, he came earlier than you did, but you both aren't living in England, but not f- from England originally.
2: Exactly, and I think that is a huge part yeah. of the story. So I wrote to him via the BBC. I yeah. wrote to the BBC to Desert Island Discs and said, Hi, I'm Stacey Kent. I was already on the BBC a lot, yeah. so it was kind of, it was very easy way in, and I said, I'm Stacey. He just played me on Desert mm. Island Discs. Could you please send this message to him and ask him to reach out I to mean, me? I mean, did
0: you hear it in the moment? Did you hear it when it happened?
2: Literally in the moment. Huh. And I'd been on Desert Island Discs before as yeah. somebody's selection, but not somebody who yeah. meant so much to me. Yeah. So that knocked me out. So he got in touch... And we became friends, and one of the things, early on, I mean, this man has just (laughs) such insight into people, and this this is why his dialogue is so phenomenal. Mm -hmm. He just gets the human spirit, and I felt so understood. Yeah. He ended up writing some liner notes to an early record that Mm -hmm. I made in 2000, and there I felt, again, just so understood. Mm -hmm. And as we were going along in this friendship, and by the way, there was absolutely no question about, in the early stages, of us writing music together, Mm. there was nothing there. We were just friends for many years, you know, maybe seven years, which I think is kind of a great part of the story, too, because we were getting to know each Mm -hmm. other. We were just enjoying one another's company and sharing Mm -hmm. thoughts and ideas. And there was no sort of feeling of being intimidated Mm -hmm. by this... Hmm phenomenal, formidable mm-hmm. writer, you know, who mm-hmm. might have walked into my life that way. We were already just good friends. Mm-hmm. And so it made sense because he kept saying things. I keep saying it made sense because everything just makes sense. This is why I'm the fatalist, right? <laughs> so early on, he would say things to me like, you know, I see you as a traveler. He, he got me because he too was in that same yes. position. Now his was way more profound than mine in that Ishiguro's story was that his family came from Japan to England. He was only four or five years old. His father had a job, a research job here. And the family always kind of lived with the suitcase by the door as if next year they were going home. Hmm. So imagine you're growing up in this foreign country, far from home, and also it's not from Europe to Europe, it's all the way from Asia to Europe. Sure,
0: you really stand out.
2: So here's this little boy from this Asian family, from this Japanese family, but growing up as an English boy, Mm -hmm. right? And year after year, it was always, we're going home. Mm -hmm. But they never went home. So that's going to leave you a particular attitude Mm -hmm. of this sense of being never quite settled. And yet having tremendous insight into two different places. Mm -hmm. And so I think when he met me, there was a real understanding of me because my personal story was: I got, I went to college. Mm-hmm. I went to New York mm-hmm. uh, to Sarah Lawrence College in mm-hmm. New York, and the family story became: Stacy never stayed long enough, even to have a dinner.
3: Hmm.
2: I graduated May whatever it was, mm-hmm. and the next day, I was on a plane to Europe. Hmm. So I, I fled.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I was always kind of feeling like I was going home, but mm-hmm. I wasn't. I never did. Well, I did many, many years later. And so we recognized this in one another. And he said, I see you as this traveler. And we would talk about the free-falling feeling of being away from your home and never feeling like you were home. And yet there's this kind of nice feeling about not being settled. There's you something this, seductive about it. Yeah. And this objective view of your own home because you see it from afar so you can see the kind of threads and yes. the very strong connection there yeah. so when he started to write lyrics for me I have to repeat I mean I just felt so incredibly yeah. intensely understood so to have these two people Jim is writing the, the music yeah. and they have such great chemistry these yeah. two and it just it just flowed but that was never uh, an intention it was just one day at, at yeah. dinner or lunch they said let's write a song for Stacy." back in 2006 and was, it was kind of Okay, let's do this. And then we started to talk about vocabulary, and off we went. Let's you and me go away to the ice hotel. The Caribbean's all booked out, and it's just as well. Once I'd have been much keener on Barbados or Antigua. But just now I think the Arctic will suit us well. Let's you and me go away to the ice hotel.
0: It really, to me, presents a question as a singer and an interpreter of lyrics. It's such a a great case study, right? Because anybody who starts to sing the great American songbook or the great songs, you know, to me, there's this question of, well, what is your relationship with those lyrics and those songs? I mean, you have to stand in front of an audience, as I just saw you do, and really embody these lyrics that you didn't write, but that you are the kind of ambassador of in those moments. Now you've got, on top of that, you've got these songs that are sort of bespoke and written for you, and they're not your words, but on the other hand, they really kind of belong to you. It's a pretty unusual, I think, relationship as a contemporary jazz singer to have these songs that are written for you that you didn't write, but that are sort of meant for you to sing.
2: Well, I think there are two things here. It's really interesting what you say. There are two things that I grab onto immediately as you speak, which are... One, you know how I said earlier, when I would read Ishiguro novels, because mm-hmm. I, I grew up reading. Yeah, yeah. I read literature and poetry, and I never wanted to write. Mm. When I went to Sarah Lawrence, I was studying Complit, mm-hmm. languages and literature, and poetry. I never wanted to write myself, mm. I just wanted to read. Mm-hmm. And yet I would find writers to whom I just connected so Mm -hmm. profoundly. And so you feel like it's your story. Yes. So that's something that I think that I'm good at, Mm -hmm. you know, because... Seeing
0: yourself in the story, in the words of others.
2: Kind of like an actor who probably reads, you know, dozens of scripts that that show up on the doorstep and they'll go, that's a great part, but that's not me. That's me. Yes. Right? Here's a little history that kind of helps, I think, fuel this, feed this. My mom taught... Literature, Mm -hmm. and she was very pro reading aloud. That Mm -hmm. was that was a really important factor for her in terms of absorbing Mm -hmm. literature. And so, when I was a kid, and I was tiny, but not Mm -hmm. tiny—I mean, I could read. (laughs) We read a lot of classics at the house, Mm -hmm. and we would all take turns reading. Mm So I grew up reading stories aloud to my siblings. Mm-hmm. And so Dickens was a, was a big one. <laughs> there was lots, but Dickens was one. And I would read aloud to my mom and my siblings. And I knew very early on that when I read it, it was different from anybody else in the house mm-hmm. who read it, even though it was Charles Dickens writing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: When I delivered it, it was my way.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I knew this so early on that I could deliver a story and make it my own even though it wasn't mine Mm -hmm. and so I think that that was very helpful Mm -hmm. because I never feel like I sing a song and think oh well you know a million people have sung this and Ella Fitzgerald sung this how do I do it I feel like of course it's mine
3: Mm -hmm. because
2: my cocktail of who I am is going to be different from every other person on the planet Mm -hmm. and so I love my songs I live them I embody them I can't sing anything that I'm not totally crazy about that I want to sing night after night after night same story because if I may just add one more thing, when we play, and I'm the singer, which means I'm singing a lyric and I'm singing a melody and I don't stray far,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: yet they come alive and come off the page because when we play, now you've seen us as a trio, mm-hmm. sometimes we're three, five, mm-hmm. six, whatever, or orchestra. Mm-hmm. I see us as one collective. Mm-hmm. I'm not the one sitting at the piano. I'm not the one playing mm-hmm. the flute mm-hmm. or the sax. And yet we're one voice. And mm-hmm. so if everybody's doing what's idiomatic to them in that role, it's my role too. Yes. So I don't feel like there's any kind of need. I've never wanted to write. Yeah. I just want to sing the song.
0: Yeah. And Yeah. that's it. Have you heard anyone else sing the tomlinson ishiguro songs have you heard other interpretations of them
2: yeah sometimes people reach out and they'll say i want to cover that song yeah and so um i don't know people's names off the top of my head but people have covered the ice hotel and i wish i could go traveling again and so they're just very you know you can always just do a little search there are various versions of people um and what is that like
0: for you as the original interpreter of the songs to hear them
2: oh it's really fun i mean i love that people write us a fair amount and say yeah. you know can I get we haven't heard recordings but they'll say can Charts. I have the song yeah. the the sheet music for that and so we're very happy to just send it out yeah. you know there's no charge for it or anything they'll just yeah. write and if they find us yes. like on Facebook or yes. any social media we just press go and send them a PDF um, and we're happy to see the songs out into the world uh, it's funny you should say that because we're very good friends with a lot of the people who are the next generation down from Jobim
3: mm-hmm.
2: right we never met Jobim yeah, but all of the kids right below him, yes. that sort of second generation, that second wave of bossa. Yes. So, Dori Kaimi, mm-hmm. Edu Lobo, Marcus mm-hmm. Valle, mm-hmm. Roberto um, Escal. these guys are good friends of ours. And they tell us zillions of stories of Jobim, who was like just the pop of all of them. Yes. And because he was so prolific, and because they were writing as well, and they would talk to him sometimes with their questions or their neuroses or their anxieties. Hmm. And he was very chill about the whole thing. And I think that one of the aspects was that people weren't always happy about their song being sent out into the world and not played the way they wanted it to. And Jobim's thing was, you know what? Once you send a song out there, it's not yours.
3: Mm.
2: Not just for the people who are playing it, but also for the people who are listening to it. If you send something out there, whoever is sitting in that chair, listening, they're participating.
0: That's right.
2: It's theirs. They can think about it how they want. It's sad. It's happy. They can vacuum to it. They can (laughs) drive to it. They can listen to it in a concert hall. You know, he had a very healthy and open attitude. And I love hearing those stories because they're really, they're so affirming. Um, I'm very happy for people, (laughs) as is Jim, as is Ish, for people to just take these songs and,
0: and be and playful. Do you think, you know, you talk about the questions that you ask, what if I hadn't come here? What if I hadn't met, what if you hadn't met Jim? What if you had chosen not to come here when you did? What if you had chosen not to stay? I mean, do you think you would have decided to sing and be musical if you had gone back to the States or stayed in the States?
2: I certainly wouldn't have sung. Really? I can really answer that question. And it's such a sliver of a chance. I was always musical. Yeah. I grew up musical. Yeah. I mean, You know, as a musician, you... It's hard to... Okay, it runs in your family. Yeah, sure. Okay, it doesn't run in mine. My parents, um, to put it, you know, kindly and gently, (laughs) because parents do make their own decisions for all sorts of reasons, and, you you know, there's like a statute of limitations Mm. on that. You can't sort of question it. My parents were very much in charge. Yes. And it took me to run away... Yeah. ...in order to have the independence that I wanted to have. Now, I didn't run away to go sing. I ran away just to get away. But had I been under their control, Mm. I don't think I would have had the guts, Mm. and I don't think I would have, yeah, I just, I don't think I would have done it. But I was always this musical kid. I mean, we would go to the movies as a family, and I would come home, and I would sit at the piano, and I would just tap out the incidental music that I just heard. I was good at retaining it. Mm My friends at school would ask me to sing for them all the time. I was known as a singer, but not like and I say this a lot mm. it was not like I was some dramatic show-stopping, you know, yeah. performing singer. My friends would turn to me and literally ask me to sing in their ear mm. in a very quiet, whispered, intimate, tender sort of a way. Mm-hmm. Mine was a soothing kind of music that I would deliver to my little girlfriends Mm -hmm. who just had a little melancholia and wanted their friend Stacy to sing to Mm -hmm. them. That's what I was known for as a little kid. Mm. And no, it's really not that far-fetched from what I do now, right? So it was always in me. And I think I would have had a musical life because I can't help it. I hear things Mm -hmm. and I'm attracted to them. And music is my life, but I probably would have gone down a different path And no, I wouldn't have done this. So that's why I think I talk about the fatalism so much. Mm -hmm. Because if I had not gotten out of America on that May whatever, the, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think I probably would have been a frustrated musician.
0: What did your parents think of the decision to become a musician and to stay here?
2: Well, at first, there was a lot of pushback. When are you coming home? Why aren't you home? And it was from my parents and my grandparents and... You know, I was lucky because I was so far away. And it wasn't the kind of day we have today because there was no social media. Yeah, that's right. They couldn't get me, right? So I could stay away without them, you know, on me or on the phone or, you know, the way your parents can text you today. Um, But they would, we would check in and they would say, when are you coming home? And they didn't take it very seriously, Hmm. Um, Jim was a graduate of Oxford Hmm. in, um, a degree called PPE, which is philosophy, politics, and economics, Hmm. and then left college to pursue a life in music. Had we not met, that might not have been Jim's path either, but I think that they had a hard time believing that their kid who was dating this guy, they didn't know we were married and we stayed in, we were married in secret for three years before we we told them. That's what I mean about the kind of controlling aspect. I just couldn't tell them. But I I married Jim in order to stay in England and not get kicked out because I had a student visa in those days. I mean, we knew we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. So it was a legit marriage. Yes totally legit it was love at first sight yeah. but my parents didn't take it seriously oh you're just messing around yeah. oh you'll grow up yeah. come back I'd already started my masters I mean they thought that I would go and pursue something more academic yeah. so um, they didn't like it at all and then they kind of got hooked because I did a gig in New York and sure. they came and they saw people liking me and I did that film Richard III yes. with Ian McKellen and there was a, an opening and they came
3: to that come live with
2: So they started to kind of get interested, like, yeah. "Oh, what's she doing?" Um, but it took a while to convince them. I didn't think—I don't think they took me very seriously. Yeah. And now they—they love it.
0: What a story! Yeah, you know, over and over, I hear that so much of the, the Stacey Kent experience as an artist is really a, a story about the two of you. Yeah. And it's a story about you know, a few versions of a love affair, you know, a musical love affair and and a personal love affair and, and choosing to become professional musicians together. It sounds like you made that decision kind of in tandem.
2: Absolutely. And then there was just the emotional side, the sort of personal side that we won't go into. But, you know, Jim really just, he saved me. He saved me from a lot of things. I think I would have been um sadder <laughs> there had I stayed mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. And so... I wasn't looking for that, yeah. but I found it. Yes. And when we met, it was, it was definitely one of those, oh, it's you. I was looking for mm-hmm. you. I didn't realize I was looking for you. So huh. this is why the pandemic was so interesting in terms of everything stopped. Yes. Everything was still. And we all started to look at our own yes. stories of our lives. Yeah, so it's multi-layered. And then musically, we just had such a great... Chemistry. Mm-hmm. We were from very different worlds. Yes. Our backgrounds were different, right? We grew up listening to different kinds of music, and yet we shared a lot of
3: mm-hmm. same
2: loves. So we both love Joao Gilberto, yeah. but um, you know, I was listening to Hall and Oates, and Jim wasn't. So you know, it was <laughs> I all was listening to Hall and Oates too. <laughs> so you know, it was yeah. interesting because we both fed yeah. this collective um, with different vocabulary, and I think that made it interesting too.
0: Just as a digression, you know, you mentioned during the show that I saw today that Ishiguro was the one who asked you to sing the Paul Simon song, American song. And um, I think that that is a brilliant request. And I think that that kind of song suits you so well. And it's, again, a challenge for singers to find songs to fit this kind of context that are outside of the long, extensive, but still sometimes limiting book of songs that we all know. And that was a brilliant choice. I could see how you could actually bring more of this music that you were listening to as a child into the repertoire. I think it suits you.
2: Many's the time I've been mistaken Many times Thanks. I mean, I think that I stopped thinking about the category that I was in because I could and I'm relieved because it would be silly to limit yourself to a genre just because that is the genre. Mm -hmm. A couple of things. I loved the American Songbook and I grew up on Mm -hmm. it. Fred Astaire and Rosie Clooney and, (laughs) you know, Barbra Streisand and Frank Sinatra and Perry Como, they were all so meaningful to me. But so was Paul Simon and Crosby Stills mm-hmm. Nash and Young, and Carole King. King. God, what a genius. And you're down and troubled And you need a helping hand And nothing Oh nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me. And soon I will be there to brighten up even your darkest night. Mm-hmm. You can't deny the thread along the way. You find things along the way in your life. The Beach Boys were huge sure. influence on me. Yeah. And so they're in my music regardless. And what's fun about doing this trio. Though is that it's so pure that it can just be about the song and there's really no question of category. I mean, the way Art plays, the way Jim plays, you're clearly jazz musicians. That's how I like my harmony. Mm -hmm. This is why I play this as Mm -hmm. opposed to you know folk music. But Paul Simon is so meaningful to me. And that's such a profound song. And you're mm-hmm. right. That was a brilliant choice by Ish. And this is what I mean about Yes. It. I mean, he gets me so well. Yes. And he said, that song is so you. And they're not that far-fetched from the stuff he writes me. Yes. It's sad. It's melancholic. Yeah. It's weary. It's harsh. Yeah. And yet, it's so optimistic. Yes. But resigned. And it's all of those things. I think
0: it also resonates knowing that you have lived so much life away from America, Mm. that for you to sing that lyric, even if it's just a subtext, it resonates.
2: Yes. I think that's a really interesting aspect. But then again, anybody, especially... Well, now, look what we're we're living in. Yes. Look what we're living through. And Paul Simon wrote that at a particular time. And everything is cyclical. Yeah. And we are living in a particular time. And... um, it's meaningful to return to that song it's so funny about the the cultural mm-hmm. influence that i've had by living abroad yes i've moved home so now i live in the state of virginia we left here a long time ago uh-huh so the formative years were here and then we were here and then here you went back lot. yeah we were here a lot because um because we were doing so much european yeah. work and it just made sense to fly in and out here kind yeah. of thing. But we didn't actually, once we sort of got going on the career, yeah. we didn't spend that much time in England because we were out and about. So our off days, you know, if you put it this way, our head was on the pillow more in Colorado mm-hmm. than it was in England. Mm-hmm. Because whenever we were here, we were touring. Right. And when we were in our off time, we would be home. Right. Um, but we recently moved to the state of Virginia.
0: So do you feel that your career is sort of an international career? Do you feel that your career is more anchored on one side of the ocean than the other?
2: So I'll do a tour in America. Yeah. And then leave and then come out into the world, the rest of the world. We like traveling. We like being part of the world. We count our countries. We're somewhere between 55 and 60 countries Mm -hmm. now. And that makes us feel really good and proud. I think it's a real privilege to be part of the world. But at the same time, that's a very interesting question right now because I would like to travel less, Mm -hmm. as I said. And now that we live in Virginia, rather than the middle of the middle, we lived in in the middle of nowhere, Colorado. We did not live in denver no we were we were about four and a half hours, follow the front ranges and mm. keep going, and we lived in really rural mm-hmm. parts of colorado and um but now that we're in Virginia, we're thinking, wow, we're two hours from d c we can drive everywhere um, I have this desire to be home or I think also you know we're thinking about. The flying, the the difficulties with flying, the world mm. and climate and global warming. And we think, wait, why are we on all these planes? This is disastrous. You know, let's stay home and grow our vegetables. So <laughs> you can't help but think that these Yeah, it days.
0: is a reset. Like we said, it is it does change the way we think about things and the internet you know we connected yeah you know you came on stage tonight and said thank you for your messages i feel i felt connected to my audience through these years and we are connected i mean i you know i used to absolutely demand that i talk to everybody for these interviews in person of course that was impossible and i learned wonderful conversations with people uh, yeah you know on the phone yeah i still choose this if i can but you know we've, we've all learned
2: yeah But to be connected, I mean, if there's one thing that's come out of this, Jim and I were luckily fine during the pandemic Mm -hmm. because we were in the middle of nowhere, Colorado, and there were days we'd just wake up and we'd go, this is so creepy because we're reading these numbers. Yeah. People are dying all around us. This is a horror show. Yes. We don't want to be inured to this. The fact of these numbers. Yes. This is a horror show. Yes. And yet we can wake up, look at the window, see the Rockies. Yes. Have breakfast do some music work, meet up for lunch. And it was creepy how normal it could feel. Yes.
0: You know, I feel the same way politically in a strange way. You know, what I felt when Trump became our president was, oh, this is what it feels like. All those histories that we read of all the countries around the world that lived under strange political circumstances. And you think, well, how did the Spanish put up with Franco for so long or whatever? Well, you know, you still wake up and have breakfast. The sun still rises and sets. It's a very strange feeling to know that the world is not as it should be. And yet life is still kind of happening regardless of this pandemic around us or this political chaos or whatever. Yeah.
2: And yet at the same time, for those of us who were really pretty despondent that Trump got in and, you know, went, oh, my God, our Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Jim and I, one, one day, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, saw this thing, because the internet is fun for this kind of thing too, connecting with people and then also just the things that show up on social media. And there was this video somebody had made, it's a while now, so I probably Mm -hmm. won't get it exactly right, but it just cut from person to person to person. And they were just screaming. (laughs) They would wake up and scream and then they were driving their bike and they were screaming. Do you remember that? And We looked at it and we laughed and we went, oh my God, this is what it's like. So there was a very loud scream, which is like a siren, which is still going.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah.
2: Right? And it's hard. You're right. You wake up, you have your oats Mm because you love your oats Mm -hmm. and the sun shines, but we're all screaming inside too at the same time. So there's a very strange dichotomy, right? Um, And we're living through this and we're watching people be brainwashed.
0: Yes. It's a question that I know a number of my friends were asking, first under Trump and then during the pandemic as well, what is our job? To spread love, optimism, connection, sure. But is there a, and maybe the answer is no. You know, Maybe that's our move is to just be overtly positive and spread love. That's great. We need that. Does it shift your thinking about what you want people to feel after spending an hour and a half with you, after we've been through so much trauma? I mean, you have an opportunity to say anything to people from the stage. Did did it make you think about the songs that you want to sing in any new light?
2: So I think that everybody really needs to do what comes naturally to them. So I will not judge the person who wants to say it and the person who doesn't want to say it. You have to go with your own sensibility. For me... I can't help it. I am a gusher Mm -hmm. and I want to make people feel better. And so I'm not going to get political up there Mm -hmm. ever because I feel like in an implicit way, I am. Mm -hmm. Um, In that I just, I want, I want there to be harmony. Mm -hmm. I want people to feel okay. And then there's, there's stuff that's a lot worse than the politics. Like the people who come up to me and I won't forget it because it happened in this room. Mm -hmm. A woman and she was young. Mm -hmm. She was in her forties and she was sitting there with her husband. And she was dying of cancer, and mm. she has since died. Mm. And it was heartbreaking. And I sat with her after the show here, right by the door, and she said, for an hour and a half, you made me forget that I had cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, y- is there anything more meaningful than that, mm-hmm. that if you can help somebody who's on their way out right as you know it's not just that it's not always you know sometimes it's just somebody had a bad day absolutely or somebody maybe had a good day and (laughs) they just want to fly with you but to connect with people on such a profound Mm -hmm. and human level is so meaningful to me i mean that is my fuel Mm -hmm. i've always wanted to make people feel better i'm always that i've always been that person Mm -hmm. who if there was agitation in my family Mm -hmm. As a kid, and there was plenty of it, I was the one who would go, no, wait, no, but please come back. You know, Mm -hmm. I was always trying to put the Band-Aid on for people. I was always trying to help people in that emotionally. Yes. Right. And it's just how I am. Um, And I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just how I am. I want people to be okay. And if I can sing to them and make them forget the world. But I'll tell you what's weird. Okay. What's weird is that when people who are people with whom I do not see eye to eye, Mm -hmm. but they come to the gig, I think, how Hmm. is it you're even at my gig? Like, can't you see Hmm. that I'm this squishy, you know, love spreading Mm -hmm. Democrat?
3: Mm -hmm. (laughs) That
2: I don't even know. Really, I'm, I'm stumped here. I don't know what to say. And maybe that's a lesson for me, too, that, you know, how there's that cliche about we have more in common than we don't? Yes. And maybe we do, because maybe they are every bit as squishy as I sure. am.
1: Can I chip in?
2: Yeah. Please. Yeah. Come sit here. Um, Come over here really close, because we are close. Yes. i Yeah.
1: If you've got people with whom you don't identify politically coming to your show, but obviously getting something out of it, that's because you're doing it the right way and yeah. you're doing your job because what your music speaks to are the universalities of life which is that we're all on this planet together and we're all on a journey and we're all going to leave at some point mm. and you know that journey inevitably involves a mixture of joy and pain and and music is one of those things that allows you to experience those emotions vicariously through a purely kind of set of abstract cues Mm -hmm. which is what music is it kind of it can trigger um deep feelings of pain deep feelings of joy without there being an object a Mm -hmm. cause of that Mm -hmm. other than sounds coming from the stage Mm -hmm. that evoke memories that evoke feelings and so on and and it's a safe space Mm -hmm. in which to kind of go on that emotional journey. So many thoughts, but I'll
0: respond to the last one, that it's a safe space, right? Because actually that may be something completely independent of any political ideology that we all need and crave and lack is a space in which to feel these emotions, which are present with all of us, but we don't know how to confront
1: them because we go through life of necessity most of the time yes. suppressing these feelings yes. because that's how you function in the world yes. you know you can't you can't go through life feeling everything all the time at a heightened level <laughs> all the time but you know in a room where music is being played and you're surrounded by people, you're doing it in public as well. That's that's a very special thing about music. Well, I music. thought
0: about the two of you knowing that I saw your matinee show and we are now in your pause, also processing complex ideas and emotion, strong emotions together and now in the space of a half an hour you're going to go back out on stage and do it again, mm-hmm. like lightning rods have to absorb these emotions and then share them again which as performers we do, but some of us do it, I think, more acutely than others, and you have to show up in that emotion again and again and again. Mm-hmm.
2: But it's kind of easy. Hmm. The image that comes to my mind, because everything is visual, everything is cinematic. Every mm-hmm. time I sing a song, by the way, it's so cinematic. You see I mean, it. I see it. You see it, right? But when you said that, it reminded me of awakenings. Yes, the yes. Oliver uh, sex. sex. right? Yes. And you know how you touch a person Mm -hmm. who's got i don't remember what the disease is called but you touch a person and then they start to move again right that's how i feel musically
3: Mm
2: -hmm. i am and you touched on something Jimmy, because you know i'm not hugely dramatic person (laughs) but i am intensely emotional Mm -hmm. but in a more quiet way Mm -hmm. and that's a very emotional thing that goes on on the stage Mm -hmm. and all i need is like just this tiny Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know Tap on the shoulder like an mm-hmm. Alexander technique, mm-hmm. and I'm off. Mm-hmm. And that's happening for me harmonically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm right next to those piano strings, mm-hmm. and they are sending out such a strong message, mm-hmm. such a strong uh, force of of Mother Nature.
0: Mm-hmm. And no, you said it from the stage. I I love being in the middle of all of these overtones. You yeah. said yeah,
2: and and that's true. Yeah, and so I feel that, and away I go. Yeah, so. There's something else, you know, not to touch on it too much, yeah. but that thing about feeling safe. Yeah. So I grew up not feeling very safe. Yeah. If if we're you know just going there sharing a little bit. Yeah. And so I think making people feel safe is very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I said Jim saved me, I mean Jim did kind of save <laughs> me, and made me feel safe and secure in a way that I did not grow up feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I really aim to be there myself be there with Jim Mm -hmm. and make other people feel that
3: Mm
2: -hmm. safe to feel just feel yes the word safe is it's complex there's a lot to this but yes it's a place where we're not here yeah we're not in this world like I I think I said up there it's not Friday you know it's just where we're suspended in air and that's what music does for me and I want to share that yes and the thing about feeling safe right now is a profound question because we're we're suffering
0: in america we, we are we are we're suffering in the world you know we i are have an suffering. 11-year-old daughter and i think i'm so happy to see her flourish and thrive and i also as my mother says i'm so sorry that you have to live in this world right now and that yeah. this is the world that's here for you it is not a safe world on so many levels and it's a strange time to be the father of a child you know
3: yeah
0: but i love sitting in these kinds of emotions i mean i tend to be attracted to it but i also want to as an artistic commentary tell you something I have felt in the last few days, listening to your music and then seeing you today, which is I feel that there's so much strong identity coming from the two of you, just embracing what it is that you do, not being fixated on what it isn't and really leaning into what you do, that it's inspiring. It reminds me to give myself permission to explore the things that I do and find the things that you do uniquely and develop those, L- you know, listening to all these records and f- seeing how you f- you found what your sound, you know, and then it's like this pool that you get to swim in then. It's really inspiring to r- be reminded that that's our job, to identify who we are and then play within that.
2: Thank you for saying that. I think that um, even though I said I grew up in an unsafe place, I think I had this self-confidence yeah. I, I was a strange mix of not very confident at all yeah. to extremely confident yes. in that I knew who I was. Yeah. And I was vulnerable, but I was okay about feeling vulnerable. My voice and what I could do with my voice mm-hmm. was something that I understood in the same way, you know, I just wasn't shy about it. Hmm. This is how I'm built,
3: mm-hmm. right?
2: This is the apparatus that I have. Yes. Right? I'm 5'5, five five, hmm. I'm, you know, small, my fingernails are small. I'm so, I'm so girly Mm -hmm. in so many of my sort of physical attributes, Mm -hmm. you know, my shoulders are small, I'm small. And so, you know, I don't have this big belt of a voice because look how I'm built. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm this tiny kind of thing compared to some people (laughs) out there. I know that. And I produce a particular sound compared to, let's say, like in my field, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this thing about belting it out, right? But if you watch Nat King Cole on TV and his mouth (laughs) is just this Cave, it's just gorgeous, mm. and it's this big, mm-hmm. right? And so he has a particular resonance, yes. and I'm this big, yes. and I have this resonance, yes. and I felt very confident about the fact that I sound the way I sound yes. in the same way that a violin sounds different from a viola, sounds different from a cello. I never tried to be something that I'm wa- yes. that I wasn't. Is what yes. I'm trying to say. Yes, I think knowing that is very important. Huge, and so I don't try and pretend to be something that I'm not. Yeah. I still work on my voice. I still want it to be a good, sure. resonant voice. But I know the instrument that I am. Yes. And so I don't feel anything other than confident yes. that I have to deliver between the physical person that I am, the instrument that I physically actually am, yes. and also the sensibility that I am.
0: Right. And over time, they, they coalesce. Right? Yeah. They become part of the same thing.
2: Exactly. And the thing you said about, you know, when you start your career... And you're being playful and you're doing things, but you're also kind of limited. One thing I want to say that's very important about the Tomlinson Ishiguro pivotal moment. Yes. So I grew up listening to the American Songbook and I sang the American Songbook and I loved it. But I also felt like there was an itch that I needed to scratch. Mm -hmm. I knew that, which is to say that I felt a little bit locked in by the formula of 32 bars Mm -hmm. of me then The Instrumentalist played, mm-hmm. and then 32 mm-hmm. Bars of Me. Mm-hmm. And time after time, that felt very limiting. Mm-hmm. And so when they started to write for me, mm-hmm. Thomas and Ishiguro, I said, look, the one thing I would love, because I'm such a word person, yes. is to have a through-composed song. Yes. And uh. let the music happen, let the improvisation yeah. happen, let it all happen, but almost ha- let it happen like a passage of time. Yes. And that's what they did for me. And so it meant that when I sang one of their songs, and then I went... And sang Under a Blanket of Blue, the power, hmm. the potency of those 32 bars yes. suddenly just leapt off the page yeah. because it wasn't just formula after formula. Yes. So that was a real turning point for me as a singer because I knew that I wanted a story, yes. a lifetime of a story in six minutes. Mm-hmm. But I never wanted to leave the Great American Songbook. Yes. I just wanted more. And that's where, where we are today.
0: Stacey Kent, thank you for giving us more today. And Jim Tomlinson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to to get to spend some time with you.
2: And you. Thank you.
0: There they were, my friends, Stacey Kent and Jim Tomlinson. What a nice couple. What an interesting conversation. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon.
2: I wish I could go traveling.
1: This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams and more, visit wbgo.org/studios.